today. If you're looking for those that's in this walled-off room over here, you can access it through this front door or right outside. Just go outside and, and around. Let's go ahead and uh, open our time with a word of prayer. We'll ask for God's blessing upon our time together. Let's go ahead and pray. Our God and Father, again, we thank you for your love and watch care over us this past week, bringing us back together again this morning. We thank you for blessing us with the privilege of being here as your people. We do pray, Lord, uh, for all those who are sick and can't make it today, that you'll uh, be with them as well. Encourage them by your Spirit. Pray that you'll meet with us who are here, uh, especially by your Spirit in a, uh, a special way. We pray that you will Open our minds and our hearts to understand the truths of your word. Help me, Lord, I ask in this task before me. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, here we go again. <laughs> We're back in our ongoing series addressing issues related to Christians and the civil government. Uh, last week I began an overview of what theonomy is and what theonomy is not. And uh, hopefully you received a handout. There are a lot of things that we didn't get to in terms of quotes on the handout that's kind of like that small book. Um, so I think there should be some copies in the back of both an outline as well as that uh, quote or that book of quotes. Um, I'm not going to go over a whole lot that we covered last week. I know there's some review we need to do, but... Um, I do want to begin with more of a succinct definition, if possible, of what theonomy is. So that's where we'll pick up this morning. What is theonomy? Uh, and theonomy is the view that the judicial laws that God gave to Old Testament Israel were applicable to all men and are still binding upon us as societies today. Now, even there, there could be some qualification or nuance depending on uh, the kind of theonomist that, that hears that or that you're talking to. They might disagree with parts or want to parse that more specifically. But I think that's a general overview of what theonomy is. The view that the judicial laws God gave to Old Testament Israel were applicable to all men and are still binding upon us as societies today. And what do we mean by, when we talk about judicial laws? Well, those were the laws that God gave to the nation state of Israel through Moses at Sinai. Uh, they were in addition to the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments and also distinct from those ceremonial laws which were meant to regulate worship. So, a little bit of a quiz here uh, by way of review. Pop quiz. Natural law. We talked about this last week. What is natural law? If you had to sum it up in a sentence or so. Ken? Things that are obvious to our senses. I think that's, that's a good start. Th what kinds of things? What Sure, creation isn't accidental, but instead it points to a creator. Right. Uh, natural laws are what we would call God's moral law revealed through nature. That touches more on natural revelation, which is one way we understand natural law, right? Uh, yeah. Men are born with natural rights. Sure. 
what, what's an example of a natural right? Freedom of religion? Yep. Right. Freedom to live. <laughs> right to life. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Good. So those things, I think, are uh, revealed through nature. What we'll get to a little bit on, on those points are, uh, those are actually given to us through the Noahic Covenant. Um, there's a threefold division that we talked about of God's law in Scripture. When we look at God's law, as, as Dr. Renahan said, it's, said, it's not this monolithic law, um, but it's, it's distinguished. How do we uh, distinguish the law of God in Scripture? What are the three types? Ceremonial, judicial, and moral. Good. We do believe, uh, excuse me, do we believe, this is actually a question, do we believe that all three of those still apply to Christians today? No, we do not. Our confession says as much. Uh, this is the center of the debate with many theonomists. Uh, we confess with others throughout church history that the ceremonial judicial laws, those two specifically, have been fulfilled in Christ and done away with. Listen to what John Calvin, uh, you've probably heard of him, what he says in book four of his Institutes. Um, this quote, I believe, is in your handout dealing with the threefold division. He, Calvin says, For there are some who deny that any commonwealth is rightly framed which neglects the law of Moses and is ruled by the common law of nations. And here's, what, here's how he puts that. How perilous and seditious these views are. Let others see. For me it is enough to demonstrate that they are stupid and false. We must attend to the well-known division, well-known division. This is Calvin in the 16th century. Which distributes the whole law of God as promulgated by Moses into the moral, the ceremonial, and the judicial law. And we must attend to each of these parts in order to understand how far they do or do not pertain to us. And so I've heard theonomists go to Calvin as their guy. And I would say, Calvin is not a theonomist. Uh, he, he held to a strong threefold division of God's law. And uh, we could go on and, and study Calvin on that. Yes, he, he uh, gets a little wonky because of being a product of his time, I think. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But um, he, he held to the, that basic uh, threefold division. Uh, finally, general equity. What is general equity? Anyone remember? That's kind of a tougher one to, to define for some. Daryl. Good. So how those laws, meaning like the ceremonial and judicial, judicial specifically, aid and support the moral law. Yeah. I think, I think that works. Um, I think it's the broad application of the moral law, meaning into the judicial laws and the judicial sphere of life. As uh, Pastor and Dr. Tom Hicks has put it, any general equity in the, uh, well, this isn't his quote yet, any general equity in the judicial law of Israel or any other nation for that matter, quote, is first found in nature. He says, in creation and conscience 
and it is also summarily taught in the Ten Commandments. I think we could test uh, that definition of general equity against any variety of judicial laws that God gave to his people, Israel. And we could prove in each case, Pastor Hicks' point is true uh, in in each case. General equity is simply the application of the moral law. Or as our uh, particular Baptist forefather, Benjamin Keach, put it, uh, quite simply, it's our moral duty. Was there a hand over here, Jake? Right, right. So we see the Old Testament uh, law given to Israel specifically. It was building codes uh, around putting parapets or a a fence, a railing around your rooftop. That's a common one that's gone to, um, partly because we see aspects of that today. And there's a general equity in those kinds of laws because it points us back to essentially the sixth commandment, which is baked into even the Noahic covenant and the creation mandate. All men are created in the image of God and that life is precious. Uh, to God and and should be to us. Um, And then there's other things. If someone were to fall off because you didn't have a fence or you didn't maintain your home well um, and they were injured, well, then there are laws that uh, common kingdom institutions could put into place with penalties attached to those laws for you not caring well for your neighbor. Um, All right, good points. Theonomy errs in a, a number of places. We're not going to deep dive in, in any one particular place, uh, at least too deeply. I do want to mention a few things, though. Uh, you know, we mentioned last week how theonomy, it does paint an accurate picture of society as a whole, being generally godless and depraved. Unless we be historically naive, this was just as true in past generations as it was today. Yes, there were good old days, but the good old days actually weren't necessarily morally good. (laughs) There were plenty of problems with uh, every uh, generation of man. And we actually read that embedded at the end of Genesis 8. God tells that to Noah and his sons that man is sinful and depraved from his youth. And so that's almost the the bedrock or the basic understanding uh, before we even get to the terms of the Noahic covenant. So theonomy does well in accurately identifying what we would call the symptoms of moral degeneration as a uh, society. But where it errs is in its proposed treatment of those symptoms, I think. Again, we shouldn't doubt that theonomy has good and noble aims as a whole, but as we know, uh, good intentions are vastly different uh, from good arguments and right conclusions. One way theonomy errs is that it makes the Bible say too much. I think I feel like I'm in a little bit of hot water sometimes when I, when I begin to go down this road. Uh, I, I, I can hear it already, some of the dirty looks from uh, Twitter folks. Um, Twitter, Twitter looks, I don't know if that's a thing. Sola Scriptura does not mean that the Bible teaches us how to do anything and everything. Uh, it is not sufficient for everything. I think, I think that was on your handout um, as fundamental number 10. God's written word is sufficient to save and to sanctify, but scripture does not sufficiently address every detail of creaturely existence. It doesn't teach us, for example, how to perform open heart surgery, how to put a man on the moon, or even much simpler tasks that we would probably go to Google to find the answers for instead of our Bibles. That's okay to say, all right? 
Scripture, we can, we can affirm sola scriptura and still Google things because Scripture doesn't tell us. Does that make sense? It's almost like, yeah, duh. But consider one of the go-to texts in Scripture on Scripture's authority. 2 Timothy three fifteen and 16. You're probably familiar with this. Paul's telling Timothy that the sacred writings, namely the Old Testament laws and prophets, are, quote, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, he says. And this is what's been called the scopus scripturae in Latin. The scope of scripture. Jesus Christ and salvation for sinners through him alone. Beyond that, Scripture is certainly, as Paul continues there in verse 16, profitable, good, beneficial for many things, teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. But it does not claim by its own authority to have all of the answers for all of the problems that we face in our human existence. I think this is essentially what Andrew T. Walker is getting at in a quote that's in, I think, in one of your articles, uh, critiquing theonomy. He says, quote, in sum, the error of theonomy is that its hermeneutic stretches beyond the Bible's understanding of its own authority. From this mistaken hermeneutic comes serious distortions with drastic consequences for the church's role in fallen political orders. So that's the first way that I wanted to mention theonomy errs, is that it makes the Bible say too much. Uh, Secondly, it errs in law and gospel because it confuses or it conflates the two. It flattens out and creates almost one category, often an overlapping one. Um, I want to kind of focus here on theonomy and the Great Commission because I've heard theonomists say things and read theonomists say things like, well, in keeping with the Great Commission, and they, they have that, Matthew 28, as their starting place. In keeping with the Great Commission, we simply want to teach the nations to obey Jesus. Okay, that sounds good on the surface. Listen to Gary North, a, a theonomist or a reconstructionist, and I think you have this one in your handout as well. Uh, North writes this, the reconstruction of civil government begins with the Bible. Oh, really? Hmm. He says, Jesus wants us to return to the standards of God's law so the whole world will marvel and follow. Just, again, do you hear how he said God's law? What, is, what does that mean? Do we, do we know? Um, we, we distinguish. He goes on, first, to show men everywhere that they are sinners and in, are in need of redemption. Okay, all right, that's good. Second, and he goes right to this, second, to set forth a blueprint for living in a world of contrary opinions. This, he says, was Israel's task that now has fallen upon the church, the new Israel, to be, quoting from Matthew 5, a city set on a hill, and to give, quoting from Isaiah 9 or Matthew 4, the people who were sitting in darkness a great light. That sounds good, doesn't it? You almost feel a little motivated to go change the world for Jesus. And you can see why theonomy can sound persuasive. Um, a lot of good thing, good sounding things about it, but we have to ask questions. Is that really the mission that Jesus left with his disciples as he ascended into heaven? To go into all the world and make the nations, all the nations, abide by God's law as he has set it down in the Old Testament. Because really that's what Gary North is saying, if he were to define his terms. That's what he's getting at. 
It's not just God's moral law revealed by nature, you know, uh, uh, love your neighbor as yourself kind of things. No, he's getting at the judicial laws. No, Christ's mission was quite opposite from law. It was all gospel. Christ's mission and the commission that he gave his disciples to share in with him was to proclaim the good news of salvation for sinners through Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. The light in, in, and the salt in Matthew 5 that Jesus is speaking of is, is spiritual in nature, not moral alone. Now, to be fair, I've, I've heard plenty of theonomists uh, say that we do need to begin with the gospel. North says that himself here. We've got to begin with uh, the gospel of, of redemption through Christ, right? But as soon as they say that, they, they use that to build a theology somehow of, of justice. And they go directly to the law and justice, saying they're doing it because of the gospel. But my friends, that's straight up a confusion of the biblical historical distinctions between law and gospel. We need to go back and remember something very basic to our faith, really. What does the law say? It says one word, do. The law says do. What does the gospel say? One other word, it says done. Amen. Christ said, it is finished. It is done. That's the message that we herald to a darkened world as believers, isn't it? That's our commission. One of the problems with theonomy, however, is that it isn't always clear and often somewhat confusing on this historic distinction between law and gospel, in part because it doesn't define its terms when it talks about law, uh, but also in part because I've heard it used from the Great Commission to promote its views. The purpose of our evangelism is not to change culture or get good laws in place so that we can obtain a more moral society. I don't read Jesus saying that. Those, those may be byproducts, and we'll talk more about this at the end of class, or towards the end of class, those, those might be and hopefully are byproducts of our evangelism, Right? As we proclaim the good news of salvation through Christ and we baptize those who believe upon him, and as part of our ongoing discipleship of those who have confessed Christ and who have been baptized into Christ and his, his church, we're to then follow that up by teaching them. Teaching who? Baptized believers in all the nations, the laws, and all the things that Christ, through his law and prophets, has instructed us. To obey all that God has commanded. Again, we'll look at this more in our final takeaway this morning. But I, wanted, I, I think this brings us to an important consideration and kind of a question mark uh, for a lot of folks regarding the Old Covenant. And this has already come up in this class, I, I believe. What is, how are we to look at the Old Testament theocracy of Israel? So I want to take a few minutes and look at the theocracy and us. Ken, did you have a question? To do all this, so yeah, if you look at the theocracy, it's impossible to do all the things that they were required to do. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a, a key point in this discussion, isn't it? Um, they were given a sacrificial system because they couldn't 
jump through all the, the hoops, as you said, um, and fulfill all of the laws perfectly. So they needed to make atonement for when they sinned by omission or commission. And, and we'll get to that here in, in, in this section. Uh, I would say, how, how are we to look at the Old Testament theocracy of Israel? And I would say, uh, we begin to answer that question by saying that we're to look at it in light of further facts, or what uh, the old guys called progressive revelation. One of, this is one of the ways that we're to interpret our Bibles. Again, back to, I think it's number 12 on your list of those fundamentals. The New Testament sheds greater light on the Old Testament. More specifically, we ought to look at Israel through the lens of God's plan of redemption for his people. And truthfully, there were a lot of good guys in church history who kind of missed this. Um, really, I think biblical theology, this category that we're speaking of here in this context, really kind of reached uh, a heyday with, with um, guys like Voss and really the Dutch, Voss and, and Kuiper and Bavink and, and others, uh, really did a fine job showing us how this all played out on a, a, a bigger picture. There's a key difference between the theocracy of Israel and our modern context under the covenant of grace, the new covenant of grace. As I think we saw last week, Israel's theocracy was at a unique order set up and governed by God himself as he related to a specific people in a specific place for a specific time with specific positive laws concerning that specific place on a map. And all of this was him interacting by way of covenant or covenants in time. And we have to keep that covenantal aspect of God's dealing with his people in history when we talk about theonomy. We'll talk more about covenant theology here in just a moment. Ultimately, we as New Testament Christians, we, we look back at the theocracy that God established with Israel pre-Christ, and we see it as typological in nature. Its relevance for us today then, because it does have relevance for us today, that's like we talked about last week, that's a big chunk of our Bibles dealing with that period of history that was theocratic, right? It does have relevance today, but its relevance for us today is more than anything spiritually instructive. Spiritually instructive, first and foremost. In God's covenant with Israel through Abraham, beginning there, we see grace foretold. We see promise of a coming redemption that was actually given in seed form where? In Genesis 3.15 in the garden as, as the Lord uh, cursed the serpent. But this all points forward and God giving us his, or excuse me, and God giving positive laws to his people, first through Abraham with the covenant of circumcision and later through Moses, we see further aspects of God's character being revealed through those kinds of laws. Aspects of God's character such as holiness and righteousness and justice and goodness. But we also see the need, as Ken kind of is alluding to, for a better and perfect mediator to mediate a better covenant with man. God's positive laws for Israel, both the ceremonial and the judicial, they point us to the need for Christ, who is the ultimate fulfillment of all of those laws and systems, as he says in Matthew 5, I believe, and as, he, as we see again more fully in Hebrews uh, chapter 8, for example. Again, that's not to say that the Mosaic law has no value for us today. We don't want to say that. It does have value. It's, it's as Paul told Timothy, it's profitable for us. Uh, 
Van Drunen says, For all that the Mosaic law and covenant can teach the world about God, righteousness, sin, grace, they do not provide a model or a paradigm of political community. And I'll tell you, when uh, in this book right here, which I couldn't recommend highly enough, Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World by Dr. David Van Drunen, who's a professor over at um, Westminster Seminary, California. He, I did a word search in the Kindle version of that, and he never once uses the word theonomy in the book. Um, But you can tell he's read the arguments, and he's interacting with the arguments. And um, so when he's using words like model or paradigm, and I just read Bonson and North use those same words for their view. It's, it's interesting. So we could go back to Bonson. Van Drunen is saying it's not a model or paradigm of common political communities, that those judicial mosaic laws. And yet Bonson, he says quite differently, uh, he writes, the civil precepts of the Old Testament, standing judicial laws, at least he defines it there, uh, are a model of perfect social justice for all cultures, even in the punishment of criminals. Now, we could, I could nuance that and probably agree with 98% of what he's actually getting at there, Bonson. Uh, it is a perfect model because, of course, who, who did it come from? It came from God. But I can't say that it's a perfect model for everyone in all places and times forever. Again, we need to distinguish On the one hand, the judicial laws that God gave Israel were indeed good and even perfect for them at the time. These were the laws that governed that covenant from or through Moses. But contrary to what we hear uh, some theonomists suggest, God did not hold nations, the Gentile nations, accountable for not obeying those specific judicial laws. What he held them accountable to was not obeying his moral laws revealed through nature. They set themselves up as gods. That's violating what we know through Moses and the Decalogue as the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And when when Nebuchadnezzar is standing there looking at all that he's created and his heart is filled with pride. And what is pride? I mean, it's, it's a sin that goes back to the garden, isn't it? Did God really say, you will not surely die? And he's standing there and saying, look at all that I have done. And just like that, God lays him flat as a wild beast in the fields. Not for violating judicial laws of Israel, but for disobeying the moral law that was written upon his heart and revealed in all that he was looking at, that there is a God and it's not you, Nebuchadnezzar. And what does he ultimately come to realize? Just that very fact in his repentance. Interesting. As we look back through at Israel through the lens of the New Testament, through that filter, as we should, we should see that Israel was a type and a forerunner, not of America, <laughs> not of any other civil state. I mean, try to tell... I don't know that I ever fit this into my notes, but I was thinking about this the last couple of weeks. How do you take theonomy in all of its principles and ideals and apply that broadly? I mean, I, I remember talking to a, a Cuban brother one time about that, and he just laughed it off. He said, yeah, that's just, <laughs> that just doesn't work. And I know just not working doesn't mean it's false, but um, 
it should apply pretty generally if you can make it, uh, if, it if it's truly uh, instructive and biblical. God's purpose was, uh, for Israel wasn't to show us how to structure our governments thousands of years later. Are there things that we can learn and benefit from with regards to God's dealings with Israel and his instructions for them? Of course, we, we've already seen that. But we miss the entire purpose of redemptive history when if we roll up Israel with all of its positive laws and its unique theocratic situation and its specific purpose by God for it in redemptive history and say that that too should apply to us and every other civil or common kingdom institution. That's just a bad reading of our Bibles. As Wayne G. Strickland points out in a book um, uh, called something about like four views on the law. I think it's quoted. There's some quotes and and references to it in your handout there. He says, internal contradiction within the system is a persistent problem with theonomy in general and Bonson's presentation in particular. Strickland goes on to say that Bonson and others want to say that all God's judicial laws to Israel are binding on us New Testament believers. But at the same time, uh, parts of that same judicial law are not applicable or enforceable today. And as Strickland goes on to correctly note, I think, he says, if the law is not applicable, then how can it be binding? Then it's not binding. It has to be both. How can you pick and choose, in other words, between some Mosaic laws, applying them and enforcing them, and not others uh, as, as you try to do that to all pe- people and nations? You can't. It's just an inconsistency with the system. Lee Irons has also done a fine job, uh, I think, in pointing out some of the inconsistencies within uh, a Bontanesque theonomy, for example. Out of one side of the mouth, Bonson says uh, that we must apply Mosaic laws to today, including the penalties, the judicial penalty, penalties God gave to Old Covenant Israel for breaking those laws. And out of the other side of his mouth, uh, he says that we can't apply all of Israel's laws to our current context. So it can get very confusing very quickly. This is what I meant last week when I said you don't get clear answers on some of the questions that theonomy raises, uh, clear, consistent answers from all uh, theonomists, self-professed theonomists. Uh, If anything, I think this helps show the validity of what non-theonomists have been saying for a very long time. That is, we just need wisdom. We need wisdom in applying God's word and even knowing how and when and in what context God's word applies. I'll pause there. Any questions or comments before we dive into the Noahic covenant and some implications from that? Jacob. Yeah, there's a lot there. They, there's a lot of writing that they've written on uh, all nations being held accountable to uh, God's law for Israel. Um, I don't have a ton of time to get into it, um, but I can point you some resources that you could read and, and how they argue that out and flesh that out. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm going to pass. Daryl. If Theonomist ran a church, would I call it a true church? Uh, possibly. I mean, if they're... Theonomist. Why? Oh, I see. Yeah, it depends. Because it's a jello on the, nailing jello to the wall. So it just depends. I know, I know true churches that are run by Theonomists. So I guess I'd back into it that way. Yeah. 
Yeah. Amen. So, so yeah, I, I think what I mentioned last week, too, is that um, as important as these are, uh, and as they touch on sometimes primary uh, issues of orthodoxy, they're not, we're talking about application of Scripture and not uh, the confession of the core doctrines of, you know, the historic creeds that, that really make up what comprises Christianity, if that makes sense. But I would, you know, I would have a lot of questions. Sure. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and yeah. And humbly speaking, I think we all probably have those blind spots uh, in our theology and practice. But I think, um, yeah, I think we can be gracious with one another and show them those things. Uh, Canon and John, and then we're going to move on. Sure. Yeah, yeah, there's, uh, Bonson's written on that, um, and he, he, it's an interesting argument, but yeah, Galatians 5.3 is, is one worth looking into and reading some commentaries on. John? Yeah, so when we get into the subject of rights, um, it's actually kind of a, 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 a different category than natural law. Natural law is what God has told us uh, we are responsible and accountable before him uh, for. Uh, natural rights are those things that we have, uh, you know, God-given freedoms to enjoy uh, in creation. So um, I think there is a lot of similarity. I'll bet you Professor Barth is probably better at answering questions on natural uh, rights. Yeah. I think so. So a natural right is a claim that you have derived from natural law. There we go. For example, in natural law, it says you cannot murder as an objective universal law. So by consequence, as a defense, you have a natural right to life. There you go. That's helpful. Indeed. And that's a good segue to uh, the implications of the Noahic Covenant, because I think that's where so much of this is embedded, uh, if we're looking at it through that scriptural lens, uh, which our theonomous friends do a fine job of, of attempting to do with their own theology. We should be beginning with scripture as well in, in many of our arguments. And we can read, if you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9, it really begins at the end of Genesis chapter 8. After the flood water subsided, you know, Noah and his family and all the animals, they exited the ark. And Noah, he, he uh, stopped right there and worshiped God. And God said to Noah and his sons, he, he begins to give them instructions, precepts. Hmm. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Still got to work for it. <laughs> but they are for you and your enjoyment and use. Every, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants in the garden, I give you everything. You see, there's a, there's a change now in, in this covenant. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So don't just like chase down a, a, you know, an animal and just bite into it. That's, you you got to 
you know, kill it first. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And then we have this, this phraseology here that's kind of become to be known as lex talionis. Uh, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For, going back to the covenant of creation, God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And, and he put a rainbow in the sky as a, a sign. And he says in verse 17, this is the sign of the covenant. I mean, he straight up uses the word there, covenant that I have established, that I have cut between me and all flesh that is on the earth. When we begin to see scripture through its covenantal lens, that God interacts with men by way of covenants, that each covenant has specific terms and laws which govern the parties within it, then that helps us open up a better, more biblically sound, biblically cohesive approach to our political theology that uh, differs from the approach theonomy offers, I think. We can begin by looking back at our fundamentals list, number seven, the Noahic covenant applies to all men in the fallen world until Christ returns. There's a little illustration. I should have drew like circles or squares around it to make it a little more complete, but uh, Google Docs, you know. Uh, Noahic covenant is all mankind, and that is a covenant that is for how long? What's that? Until kingdom come. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the, 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 the world to come. The new heavens and the new earth. Right? So that Noahic covenant God has established is, is there. Right? And that's overriding every other subsequent covenant in progressive revelation that God reveals. Uh, there's no rule in the universe that says God can only make one covenant with one group at any specific time. No. He, he makes different covenants as he sees fit. And so the Noahic covenant governs all mankind. Uh, until Christ returns. But then these, we see these other covenants uh, pop up in, in our Old Testament and, and into the New. Um, and, and the two here that I've mentioned are the Mosaic Covenant, which is for Old Testament, with Old Testament Israel. And then the New Covenant, which is foretold. I mean, again, if, depending on how you want to look at it, as far back as Genesis 3 or in, in Jeremiah uh, 31, it's foretold uh, for the redeemed. And so in the history of man, the new covenant, excuse me, the Noahic covenant predates the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and even the new covenants. Furthermore, unlike those covenants, the Noahic covenant is not concerned with spiritual matters of the heart. Did you notice that as you read there? It's not concerned with religion, so to speak, um, namely salvation from sin. Instead, its focus and laws are aimed at the preservation of all creation. I'm going to quote Van Drunen a lot more as we move forward. Van, David Van Drunen calls the Noahic covenant a very modest ethic uh, that doesn't address more than just a, cute, a, a few key areas in our lives. He writes, the purpose of the Noahic covenant is preservative, aiming not to redeem the world or create a human utopia, but to maintain human society and the broader natural order. Thus, its moral requirements fittingly focus upon what is necessary for human survival rather than portray a grand vision for the ideal community. Van Drunen uh, says, if the human race is to survive, it certainly must procreate, eat, and restrain violence. I think those are the three category areas that we find in the Noahic Covenant. Yes, John. 
Absolutely. I think you could, yeah, I think you could argue based on the end of Genesis 8 of a built-in worship, a right worship of the Creator. But to your point, I don't think the covenant itself uh, is inaugurated until after that. Uh, that's a prelude uh, to the covenant. And so, um, and, and that's going from Noah to God, whereas the covenant is, is made by God with Noah and all of his posterity. I don't know if that, if that answers that question, but... Um, yeah, good question. So, um, what does, again, what does the Noahic covenant address? Well, uh, as Van Drunen alluded to, issues of family and sex, procreation, uh, work and food, uh, and human-to-human justice. These are the things which apply to all men in all times, in all places. We'll mostly focus on uh, the idea of justice uh, for our purposes today, and I need to hurry up. Um, when we look at Genesis 9, we find embedded here this implication of what we would call, or what Van Drunen calls, intra-human justice. Uh, the justice we show towards and expect from our fellow man. And, and what is the foundational understanding of justice that does come, through, come to us through the Noahic Covenant? It's a rectifying justice. And Van Drunen has like a chapter or two just dealing with different types of intrahuman justice. Uh, recompense versus uh, rectification versus... Um, all these, all these different kinds of justice that are just super interesting to dig into. But we see that justice which seeks to right wrongs done by humans toward one another. And again, we don't have time to deep dive on that uh, this morning, but I recommend that to you. Another implication besides that human-to-human justice, if this is, you know, if you, if you take a life, then for that uh, sin, uh, for breaking the covenant in that way, your, your life should be owed as well. Um, and so common societies are enabled or empowered by God through the Noahic Covenant to set up systems which follow that design. All right? Uh, another implication of the Noahic Covenant is, that the, is the promotion and protection of true religion is not the responsibility of the state. And I, I think this is by God's design, based here in the Noahic Covenant. Civil government has no business creating laws to promote or uphold the first table of God's law. All right, there I said it. I know that's been a question uh, that's surfaced and and theonomists uh, argue strongly in different ways on that. Um, I know we can look back and read guys like Luther and Calvin and others uh, who, even those who drafted the original Westminster Confession, and we see them saying otherwise, or at least it's a little murky. Um, But I'm not alone in arguing that they were wrong on that point. We don't have any problem saying they were wrong with regards to their paedo-baptism or their uh, church polity or the sacraments or a number of other issues, but... um, just like when we read anyone from church history, we read discerningly. We realize they were products of their time. And as Dr. Renahan has put it uh, a variety of times, we need to read them uh, and eat the meat and spit out the bones, right? Enjoy what we can take from them that's good, but doesn't mean we have to take them and adopt them wholesale. I'll, I'll tell you this, friends. I do not think we want government even if it was a good government promoting one religion to the exclusion of all the rest. According to the Noahic covenant here, uh, 
common societies of men have freedom in this regard. In a common kingdom community like our nation, uh, religious freedom is not limited to any one religion. It offers instead a pluralistic society which tolerates many religious views and practices. Arguing forward from the Noahic Covenant in Genesis 9, Van Drunen writes, In terms of intrahuman justice, therefore, each person has a divinely bestowed natural right not to be disqualified from the political community because of the religion he or she professes. So he's drawing a line, I guess, in that case between uh, natural law found in the Noahic Covenant to a natural right not to be excluded from a common kingdom, you know, uh, community uh, because they don't profess the same religion. Here's the difficulty faced by those who propose that civil governments should enforce the first table of the law. Uh, By way of reminder, what does the first table of the law tell us? What does it command? Duties to God. Love God, worship God aright. And so with what specifically is the first table of God's law concerned? Is it concerned with well-ordered civil affairs? No, it's concerned with well-ordered worship, we could say. And whose job is that? <laughs> it's, it's the church's. So how are common political communities to legislate right worship? Well, they're not. not you can't argue that, at least, from the Noahic Covenant. It's not their God-given jurisdiction. Ben Drunen writes, The Noahic Covenant concerns interhuman justice, not the punishment of wrongs against God. And where's he getting that from? Well, he's getting from the Noahic Covenant, which says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. He continues, insofar as God delegates judicial authority to human judges, he commissions them to administer penalties proportionate to wrongs done to fellow humans, not penalties proportionate to wrongs done to him, God. Does that make sense? Van Drunen's arguing here, he says, civil governments first are to enforce the claims of justice. Second, civil governments have no basis for determining which specific institution or doctrine is the true or truest one. What basis would a common uh, civil government determine that? And third, when a political community grounded in the Noahic covenant weds itself to a particular religion or religious body, Van Drunen says it adds a priestly dimension to its rule. Thus, I conclude, this I conclude, usurps a divine privilege granted only to the church. Jake. Yeah, so I think the Noahic Covenant assumes uh, natural law. So it predates, because natural law is just the, the visible, uh, you know, what we can discern through reason and nature uh, of God's moral law. It's already written on our hearts. So the Noahic covenant is taking, you know, big pieces of that and applying it to all men everywhere in, a, in living with each other kinds of environments, common uh, uh, civil societies. Ken? Sure, yeah. Nod to the Creator in the Declaration of Independence. Ray, and then Jake, and then we'll move on. Yes. 
Yeah, we, we, we do want to say that all men everywhere are responsible and accountable to God's moral law. And so they'll be held to account, you know, Romans 1 through 3 is, um, talks in more detail about that. Um, that all men everywhere uh, know of God and have enough information given to them through creation and natural law um, to, to then be responsible for when they reject that. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's applying to what civil institutions, um, you know, governments and systems of, of uh, society uh, should be legislating. And, and the argument that I'm making, that Van Drunen's making, is they should not be legislating uh, issues of worship. Doesn't mean that we aren't responsible to worship God aright before God, but we're not responsible to worship God aright before man. Maybe that's a good way of putting it. That makes sense? Unless we're talking about the church as the jurisdictional body, legislative body on that. Jake? Yes, yes. We're talking about interhuman justice and common societies. And so certain things are going to be permissible, including freedom to, uh, religious, uh, freedom to religious worship as one sees fit. However, <laughs> that's not to deny absolutes and that there is an absolute correct good way to do that according to God. We just, how do I command you, neighbor to neighbor, to do that? We, we don't. We can't coerce one another when you get to Romans 13. That's, what, that's not why the, the magistrate bears the sword. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, there's a lot there. I, I want to get through it, this last section uh, in the, the short time we have left. So let's, let's try to plow through here. Uh, listen to two passages from the Old Testament. And I want you to tell me which one sounds more like what we hear instructed of New Testament believers uh, or, or two believers in the New Testament under the New Covenant. Uh, first is Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 5. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Jeremiah 29, verse 5. God instructs his people who are living in exile in this way. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and ha- have sons and daughters. It's beginning to sound like a covenant that I remember talking about. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of that city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Contrast that with Deuteronomy 23, 6. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. <laughs> the first passage was God's commands to his people in exile through Jeremiah. The second was an earlier message to his people who were under a theocratic system that God had set up specifically for his holy people um, for a specific purpose. But by the time we get to Jeremiah's message, the days of military conquest were long gone. For the remnant who still trusted by faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was still their faithful God. But their circumstances externally were very different as they awaited God's deliverance. When we come to the New Testament, it just seems that there's a very different tone and tenor to the instructions given to 
uh, God's people under the new covenant in Christ. Instead of material conquests that we can read about in, say, Joshua 10, for example, you talk about a bloody passage of scripture, go read that again. Uh, If they made a movie out of that, you wouldn't want to watch it probably. Um, There's no more killing of your enemies in the new covenant. (laughs) Instead, there's what? Love your enemies, as Jesus taught us, his disciples. Instead of an emphasis on obeying the law in order to receive a blessing, there's an emphasis on the blessings themselves because there's someone who has already obeyed the law perfectly for you. Christianity is a meritorious system one way or another, isn't it? The question is, who's doing the meriting? And for us as believers, understanding the gospel, the good news that Christ has merited God's favor for us and given us his righteousness. And then the blessings themselves, that emphasis it is followed by imperatives based in grateful obedience for that good news that we've received. In 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, we read the words of Peter to the Christians scattered all over Asia Minor. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. I like the, I think it's a KJV. Strangers and aliens. I'm looking at some of you. Some of you are strange and alien. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Uh, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's echoes of Christ's own words there from Matthew chapter 5, dealing with salt and light. What's the point? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God, not see your good deeds and develop a better society based on your good deeds, although, again, that might be a byproduct. Peter refers to his readers in these somewhat strange terms, sojourners, exiles. They weren't literally, necessarily, maybe some of them, exiled from their homelands. They weren't refugees in a literal sense, as some uh, theonomists have argued, believe it or not. Uh, They weren't literally on a pilgrimage or in between places. No, he's talking about them in theological terms. And this is new covenant language that we ought to understand uh, what's being talked about here, the two kingdoms idea. Again, Van Drunen writes, whatever we say about Christians' identity in earthly communities must be understood in light of their new creation identity. Um, I want to move on quickly and talk about prudential judgment and political strategies. As way of reminder, we'll have a wrap-up class at the end of the series. So jot down your questions. If we don't get to them, we can talk after class today or save it for our panel discussion and Q&A at the end of this series. Um, you won't find me quoting Dr. John Frame very often. <laughs> I would disagree with him. We would disagree with him. Some key points of theology proper, among other issues. Um, but He has offered some very helpful insights, uh, specifically in response to theonomy. And he wouldn't even uh, agree with us fully in, in our position here at Grace Covenant. But Frame writes, in Christian ethics, there is always a situational perspective. There's always a situation to which the law must be applied. And scripture does not always specify that situation in detail. There is therefore always a role for human reason to take the word of God and apply it to the situation. I think Dr. Frame is spot on there. We have to apply the word. And what's, what's that take? I think this is the point here. We've been given the opportunity by God to exercise wisdom, or as Van Drunen calls it, prudential judgment in political strategies. We have options when it comes to how we engage as citizens of this common kingdom. We can vote. We can protest. We can write letters. We can, uh, 
you know, be in active government service ourselves. A host of other common political means. I might have my own strategy long term for how I want to engage and influence local government. You might have a different one. Maybe yours is more aggressive than mine. But it takes wisdom, brothers and sisters, and we have liberty in these areas when it comes to the complexities of living our lives in common political societies. Again, we we, we got to be careful here because um, I'll, I'll get to one of my concerns regarding a lot of the theonomic talk, and it comes to an infringement upon a Christian's liberty of conscience. Us Baptists, well, we're kind of known, maybe infamous at times, for our desire to, um, to preserve the liberty of conscience. I mean, chapter 21 in our confession deals with this. One way we can do that, though, is by distinguishing that which is good from that which is necessary. Now, if you know your Westminster Confession, that might sound familiar. The Westminster Confession in chapter 1 talks about a good and necessary consequence. Um, While the Baptists modified that language of good and necessary consequence with regards to Scripture's authority uh, or it's the whole counsel of God, we know that the writers of the Westminster weren't repeating themselves when they said good and necessary. They meant two different things by that. They were articulating on one hand that Scripture contains instructions which are good but may not be necessary. Good inferences and logical deductions can be made from certain passages and applied in certain ways. That's good. But two, that Scripture contains instructions which are necessary and therefore also good. If and when I hear Theonomists say things like, Christians should be involved in fill in the blank. You know, uh, setting up a Christian government. Uh, and, and really, let's, let's just cut through um, all of the fog and the haze around it. They really want to set up a theonomic government. Okay, And, and that should... When we, when we chase that logical uh, trail, that, that concerns me more than even just a Christian uh, moral government. Um, when I hear a theonomic brother or sister say that it's the duty of believers to be about the business of influencing government in very specific ways, you know what one question I have for my theonomic friends? By what standard? By what standard should we be doing all these things that you're telling me we should be doing as Christians when Scripture is silent on it? Now they'd say, well, Scripture's not silent, and you're going to take me to Moses. We've already addressed that. If the anonymous say it's a matter of obligation, using words like should and do, then we are talking about issues of law, not of gospel and grace and wisdom. If it's something we should be doing, it should be plain in Scripture, should it not? Uh, As brilliant as many of the theonomic thinkers are, I've read them, you can read them doing exegetical cartwheels and backflips on some of these passages, um, showing us that there's law here when there is no law laid out for us to abide by under the new covenant. So we need to exercise wisdom and we have freedom in Christ, liberty to apply uh, God's instructions in various ways. Uh, finally, two more points here and we'll, we'll wrap. Um, I think theonomy is missing a gospel-fueled approach to cultural transformation. And I know they take exception with that, but uh, number fundamental 14 on your handout, Christ has not called his church to transform the culture. And what I mean by that is that Cultural transformation from less moral to more moral shouldn't be our goal as Christians. We talked about this a little with the Great Commission. Our calling is to preach Christ and to seek to pattern our lives after him. 
we all do this by faith. We know that Christ is building and strengthening and preserving his own people under the new covenant. That's what he's told us with regards to the church, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We have full and complete trust that Christ is preserving his, trust, his church, just as we have full and complete trust that God is preserving his common kingdom based on a different covenant that predates the new covenant, which is what? The Noahic covenant. He said as much. All right, there's much more that can be said there. And finally, an underemphasis is something I see in theonomy on the ordinary means of grace through individual churches. I think I said this last week. Our problem is not just bad laws and weak government. While those exist, America has seen some of the best laws and the best governmental systems out of any other country in the world in any other time in history. So governmental reform is not the answer because bad laws and weak government is not our real problem. Our deeper, more pressing problem is sinful hearts and weak churches. And the only answer to both of those problems is the gospel power of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we expect to ever see a transformed society externally out there in the common kingdom if we aren't preaching Christ week in, week out, in here, in churches? And people aren't prioritizing our local assembling and the ordinary means of grace on his day. We need a greater desire as those who call ourselves Christian and an urgency among those who are already God's people to pray as he's commanded us to do. I think we overlook the power of prayer as a means of grace for God to transform people and people then can move to influence uh, the morals of a society. Well, there's so much more that I, I could say here, but I don't want to just live in a moral society uh, or I do want to, sorry, uh, I do want to live in a moral Christian society just as much as anyone else. But if we're ever going to get there, it's not through some kind of Christianization of government, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So may he give us the grace to uh, faithfully and unswervingly and courageously uh, preach Christ until he comes again to restore all creation. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for this time you've given us. We we love you. We pray, Lord, for greater zeal that we might be those who proclaim Christ with abandon and that sinners might be saved. And through that, surely that a byproduct of it would be a society that looks to you and, and wants to instill uh, your truth even in the common kingdom sphere. We pray all of this and ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.